Welcome to the Financial Dads Podcast with Paul Fagan and Paul Becker. This podcast is for all the moms and dads out there who struggle with life's topics, especially related to family and finances. Now here's my dad, Paul Fagan. Hey, Paul. How you doing? Hello, Paul. How's it going today? Uh, doing well. Fantastic. Um, I was looking through the podcast episode numbers. Um, we're at 99, historically. 99. Look at that. Wow. So I don't know what to do for the 100. Um, I got an idea. Okay. I got an idea. Okay. Do we want to save it and yeah. uh, put it aside? Okay. We'll surprise the listeners with the 100th episode. So we'll follow Paul's lead and we'll figure out what to do in that space. So um, the other thing that was interesting, I had an interesting conversation with my mom um, over last weekend. Um, she ran into the same problem I did at a restaurant. Um we neglected to ask the price of something and it and it and it caught us off guard and, and by surprise. So my mother was telling me that she went out to dinner um and she wound up buying a pizza. She had a pizza for dinner and a glass of wine. Um long story short, the pizza was $17, the glass of wine was $27. For a glass of wine? Yeah, yeah, and, and I know that that does exist, right? I get it. I totally get it because I was burned the same way a long time ago, Paul, um, and I was recently reburned again because I neglected. I, I fell short. I wasn't as vigilant, but one of the things that's interesting is, um, and I told my mother this after it got me, a similar situation a while ago. I would always ask, right? You go into a restaurant. And just don't blindly ask what, you know, okay, I'll take a glass of red. Because you could wind up with a $27 glass of wine. Um, I thought it was pretty shady um, of the restaurant, especially at that price point, right? If your entree is $17 and you're selling $27 glasses of wine, like that's a little bit shady, right, to me. But, you know, it, it's buyer beware, right? It's like uh, caveat emptor. What was that? I learned that from the Brady Bunch, right? Wasn't that on a Brady Bunch episode? Um, with, uh, I think Mike you're Brady. dating yourself now. Paul. I know. Well, 50, right? So in the 50s. So, um, But interesting to me. So I, I think the, the moral of the story is to, to always kind of ask, right? If you're unsure, sometimes you just have to ask. You know, you're in a restaurant or you're getting a, a, a repair done or you have someone even coming into the house. Like I had a recent one where – um, we had an issue with our, with our HVAC and didn't quite ask what it would be assumed that we were part of the club. We, we, we pay monthly for this service sort of agreement. Um, didn't, I was shocked <laughs> at the mm. bill. Um, so, you know, I paid it, um, lesson learned, uh, once again. So I got bit twice, uh, once a long time ago over a glass of wine and one recently over HVAC service. Um, but I told my mother, I said, listen, you know, the, I think the rule of thumb has to be if you're unsure, you know, this is a lesson learned. Sometimes you just have to jump in and, and ask. So that was my kind of um, story over the last couple of weeks. Uh, Paul, what, what's been going on with you? Um, one, I one simple way on that one is you don't drink the wine. Like I, I just don't drink. So there you go. That, that's my solution to that one. I know how much the pizza pie is. I got a lot going on here. I think we'll get into it during the episode today. I was looking at buying some property in in Florida and learned a lot about um, Florida, how different it is than New York with purchasing real estate. There's some really interesting nuances there. 
and then um, some how I use some of those lessons learned even with the kids. So uh, we can get into that during our talk, during our discussion today. Oh, very cool. Well, it is timely. Uh, today we're going to do Reddit topics, but we're going to do real estate investing. Um, we're not really, I'm not an expert at it by any means, but some of the articles we pulled were kind of interesting. We can lend a uh, financial dad's lens to some answers that we would do just from a real world common sense perspective. So I tried to pick the ones that weren't so technical. Uh, but first, let's talk about some news we saw this past week. Um, the first news story was from Bloomberg.com, uh, and it's from their personal finance section. Crypto fever could put financial advisors in a bind. Clients can be counted on to exert pressure to include digital currencies in their portfolios, but then look to blame for any losses. So I thought this was an interesting article, Paul. I, I think for me, when I read it, I really started to think about these financial advisors out there. Are they really up to speed? with what crypto is all about. It's so new, and, and of course they should be, but you know this really isn't a traditional type of investment, right? I think um, bonds, stocks, real estate, these are the things that financial uh, advisors are used to dealing with. Um, and I think maybe a small percentage have a good handle on what crypto is, but I'm guessing that a lot don't, right? So there is a, a hesitation to include these in the portfolio mix. Um, Paul, what was your take on this uh, article? Uh, I, I tend to agree with you, Paul. It, it is newer, but it's actually not that new. A lot of these cryptos have been around for 10 years in the concept. It all started with blockchain. Uh, and we I think we did a topic on blockchain at one time. So it, it stems from that, but it's only recently gained much more mainstream as people heard about all the money being made and then you have you know fomo fear of missing out and and that's what's driving um a, a fair amount of this my personal opinion over the last especially since i've been watching it over the past i don't know x number of months it almost seems as if the crypto is becoming like a commodity like a precious metal commodity where as the market goes down, the crypto seem to be going up and almost like a gold would. So it's just, you know, by hypothesis I have, haven't read about it really. It just, it seems like it's that, but it's extremely volatile. You know, a good buddy of mine was, um, just, was it uh, Wednesday? He's like, Paul, you get any Shiba yet? I'm like, no. I'm like, well, which one's Shiba? And he's like, well, it's the anti-Doge, which is, and Doge is the anti-Bitcoin. I'm like, so why are you buying that? He's like, ah, I, I'm into humor. So he bought it. And by the way, he's made a killing this week because Shiba went up so much. But on, on what basis? On what foundation? So I do think the financial advisors need to understand and get up to speed and explain it in really simple terms to people. People have a hard time just grasping this non-tangible cryptocurrency and we did uh we did a podcast on the cryptos a few months back and it's interesting because it's non-tangible and there's nothing quote-unquote backing it but you can almost again look at the dollar right well the dollar is just uh the good faith of the united states so how is that different than some of the crypto 
again, uh, listen to our previous podcast on that. But I do think the advisors need to be really transparent about the volatility of this as it is, you know, you have Bitcoin going from uh, 66,000 a coin this week down to 60. Uh, it was 60 something a few months ago, went down to 50. It's extremely volatile. Um, so my my advice, my, my commentary on this would be to uh, to really make sure you understand it and don't just rely on your financial advisor. Yeah, I think I think I agree. I heard about that Shibu Inu or whatever that was this week. And I think even since we did the podcast, there's been new currencies that have come out. So it is interesting. I think the bottom line is um, you would have to have this discussion with your advisor. And if you're unsure and your advisor's unsure, I'm not sure if you want to be that person putting your money in it. Right? I, I think to your point, Paul, you want to have a thorough somewhat thorough understanding yourself of what this is all about. So before beating up your advisor about not putting crypto into your portfolio to balance it out, um, I would try to learn more about it yourself and understand it because chances are um, you might be going down a, uh, a black hole with it if you just don't understand. So cool, cool. Um, the second story was also from Bloomberg. Um, it's the 60-40 portfolio is dead, just more expensive. Split your investments any way you like. Just be ready to pay a lot more to find safety in the market. So once again, I guess we're focused on investing this week, whether it's real estate or or the markets. Um, for me, Paul, when I read this article, I see where they're going. Um, I guess the 60-40 ratio where you had 60% in stock and 40% in bonds, uh, which is a typical um, investment miss, mix that is recommended uh, over the years for a lot of by a lot of advisors for customers. Um, now they're starting to squeeze it a little bit because they're not seeing the returns. So now we're we're seeing advisors looking at 70-30, 80-20 splits um, to get more of a return out of the portfolio. But the risk there is if you go too heavy into stock and depending on your age and your risk tolerance, you could really get burned. Um, I had this recently happen uh, in my tiny portfolio in terms of um, I've had one uh, investment that um, is tanking the rest of my other investments in this one area. And it's just, it's crazy to me. And, and, and I probably could have prevented it and, and I didn't. And, and I went against my own advice and I didn't sell it uh, when I received it and got it. And now I'm stuck with it and I have to wait for um, things to, to happen. And hopefully um, uh, the stock will go back up. But but it is interesting um, that if you're not careful, um, these things can happen. So if you're going to go beyond the 60-40 split, you, you're probably going to have less volatility by staying 60-40. Uh, but if, if you're going to go past that and increase your stock exposure past 60%, be prepared for the consequences and the risk. Uh, Paul, what was your take on this story? Uh, really, almost identical to you, Paul. The the sixty forty split is is much more uh, stable, um, but again, it's a lot less yields. And as uh, actually the article just reading again here calls it out, the prospect of low growth, high inflation economy, stagflation. That's the definition of stagflation, and it seems to be that's kind of where we've been heading for for quite some time. You know, the interest rates have been low for a long, long time now. And, you know, 
inflation is going up. I was just listening to uh, something on the news the other night where certain items at the grocery stores are up 5%, 8%. And um, we're, we're, we're heading really directly towards stagflation. And um, stagflation is hard. It's hard to get out of it. It's hard to make market gains. So you're going to have to look at potentially being more aggressive. But as you're more aggressive, there's more volatility. And can you stomach that? Where are you in your financial journey? You know, do you require that stability because you're closer to retirement or you are retired or, you know, you're younger and you can handle that, that risk threshold more? It depends on, on so many variables, you know. You have kids in college or not, kids about to go to college or not. You just had kids, you know. What is your individual risk tolerance? Well, not even your individual. You know, if you're married and you're, or your partner, you, know, you have to take that into account and you have to have that discussion with them. It's not just when, when you're in a union like that. It's not just you. You have to do that together because and make sure you're fully transparent and everyone understands that. But uh, yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think for me, and you hit it on the head with situational. Um, for me, my son's 529. Um, consciously, about six months ago, I, I reduced it because um, he's going to need the money in the next 12 months, um, as opposed to my daughter, where we left hers as is, right? Because she's 11. And, and we've got, you know, five plus more years to go so we can look to weather any storms there. So we, we keep hers more risk in her portfolio of, of 529 uh, as opposed to my son. Um, it is funny with the interest rates. Um, it prompted me to think about when I had a paper out as a kid. I, I had a bank account, a simple passbook account that used to, I think it was 5.25 percent, five and a quarter, used to get on a bank account. That was the norm. Um, yep. at any bank when, when we were 12, you know, 13 and that yielded a decent amount of money, right? Like if you put a thousand dollars in, I guess at the end of the year, I'm going to do the math, right? You got 50 bucks. You don't get that yep. now, right? You don't no. get that now. And, and so it really is crazy on where everything has gone with this stuff. So, um, I think to kind of sum it up, um, the idea here is, um, if, if you're going to take more risk, uh, you want more return, you're going to have to take more risk, and you're going to have to suffer the consequences if that, if you go from 60-40 to 80-20 or 70-30 and you increment that and tick that risk up, um, you know, just be prepared that it, it could it could bite you. But over the long term, let's hope it doesn't. I think that's the key, depending on your timing. So I guess with that, we'll go on to the, the weekly topic, Reddit real estate investing, random topics. So we we've taken... From the Reddit site, reddit.com, uh, this time usually do personal finance, uh, so slash r slash personal finance, um, and today we're doing uh, real estate investing, uh, slash real estate investing if you go to Reddit, and always an interesting uh, journey going through these articles, Paul, uh, whether it's the personal finance, the investing, they have one on the fire movement. Um, there were some interesting ones there. I looked for topics, but I think I, I went, I gravitated towards the real estate investing piece. And maybe Paul, you could elaborate before we jump into the topics here today. And I think some of these will maybe tie, uh, but maybe tell us a little bit of what's been going on if you're comfortable. Um, and, um, at, you know, at a high level, whatever you want to share, we'd appreciate it. And then we could kind of jump into these stories. Yeah. All right. So I'll, 
uh, I'll try and find a balance between oversharing and not, but uh, anyway, keep it in tune with, with our theme here. So um, we have one son who moved to Florida, uh, another one's still in college. And, you know, for years, even before our son moved to Florida, we were looking at, hey, do we want to perhaps move there? You know, get out of the snow and stuff like that sometimes. Or, um, you know, we enjoy boating. So be able to boat all year round was quite appealing to us, something a little bit warmer climate. And obviously you could do lots of states. And so we've been looking at a specific area in Florida and we actually put a bid in on, on a property, Paul, uh, on a house. And my real estate broker down there who I met, we, when we were down there visiting, you know, he said, listen, this price is, you know, they undervalued this house intentionally. I know this broker. So it's a great lesson learned. So he knows the broker who has a listing, and this broker typically puts the house below market value to drive interest, to drive it up, and get even more than fair market value. So really interesting theory, um, way, to, way to do it. And it did. So we went in. Our guy suggested what fair market value is. He told us what he would have listed it at. So we went in actually above that by about $15,000 even above that. Um, doesn't sound like a lot, but when you look at how much lower they had it listed, I think they had it listed 50000 below market value. So now I went in sixty-five, okay, over the listing price, which is a lot of money, at least to me. And we didn't get the house. We didn't, we didn't get it. Ouch. Is, it, is yeah. it still in play or it's not in play? No. So, it, And this is where some of the other things come in. In So New York, you put a bid in, they accept it, then you do your inspections, and then you go to contract. That's how it works here in New York. And, and states do things differently. And this is where having someone local is really awesome. Um and not, I don't just mean local to Florida. I mean, we found someone who actually lives in the area that we're looking. Not the next town over, not, you know, a dozen blocks away, like in the specific little niche, niche area of where we want to live. We, we happen to find somebody literally right there. So their local intelligence is great on it. And what he, he taught me, because uh, he knew we were from New York, so we, we talked about it. In Florida, when you make a bid, you're not just bidding, you're actually signing the 18-page contract for the price. So you put in your numbers, you know, how much you're offering, how much you're putting down. The homeowner, the current homeowners are listed on the contract already signed. You're digitally signing it and going back to them. And then they have two, three, four contracts in front of them, and then they're choosing one. So it's really kind of reverse of New York. And then after that, you have a 10-day inspection period where you can do you know, your termite, your building construction, whatever else you need to do. And then after the 10-day period, it's a, it's a deal. So it's really opposite of what you and I are used to here in New York. And... Um, it was kind of hard to swallow in a way for me because here I am signing a contract for that much money. And, um, 
it, it was weird. It, it was very weird. Fortunately, we had our son down there. He was able to do the open house for two hours. Uh, had we gotten the bid, we obviously would have flown right down and and taken a look at it with the inspectors and gone over everything to make sure it truly is what we needed. So it was really weird looking at a house via a uh, an iPhone FaceTime call for two hours and looking at it that way, which is absolutely nuts, Paul. And I can never imagine you doing anything remotely crazy like that. Yeah, this it's it is fascinating because I'm going to dig into this a little bit because. Uh, Florida is is a place that I I would like to go. I don't know if my my wife agrees, but that's one place I've thought of. Um, so so to kind of recap, um, I see a house I'm interested in. I can't just bid on it. I have to commit to the yeah. purchase. Yeah. Interesting. Interesting. I did not know that existed. Um, it seems odd to me. That would put me off. Um. I guess is there is there a reason why did the realtor kind of go into why they do it that way as opposed to in New York where you can, you know, you could put a soft offer in and then once you're get to your number you can firm it up with real contracts. Why do they start off the bat with contracts? I, I, is that did he go into that or I'm just curious? No, like, no, it's just that's how it's done down there. What, what was disappointing is we were told that the. The bids were super, super close, like almost identical. So it kind of sounds like to me the people who won the property were uh, the listing agent's own client. So they said uh, it's an interesting timeline. The bids were due Sunday by 7 p.m. Okay, great. Put hours in. We had it in by 5 p.m. Sunday. Well, and they were going to look at that night and let everyone know didn't happen didn't happen all of a sudden monday monday um later afternoon we finally uh finally got it so what i think happened uh, again just a theory here or a hypothesis i should say is it was the listing agent's client they saw our bid they went whoever wanted that property went found more money redid another contract sent it over and then that's how they won because it was apparently super super close dollar wise and then you have the 10-day inspection period. If they found something or they want to haggle on it, then they, they would do it at that time. The other lesson I learned from my, uh, from my guy there was very interesting. They asked us if we want to be the backup offer. I want a backup offer. I don't want, I don't, I don't want second place. I'm either winning or I'm done, right? Uh, I can be that way. Uh, and... So we're talking about it with our kids and we're explaining the whole thing. Like, yeah, you want the backup offer. What if it falls through? And, and it was interesting. So our broker's like, I have never, ever suggested to anyone to be a backup offer, because which doesn't make sense in a way. But here's his logic. And I, I kind of agree with him. If the offers are that close and they go in and they do their inspection and they find something anything right they want to get the price lower by five thousand dollars the homeowner if you're the backup can say well if you guys don't want it i have this backup offer here for five hundred dollars less than you're offering me and now you want five thousand dollars off that's you know forty five hundred dollars i'll just go to the backup people so the backup, it's just really interesting. So the backup 
becomes a lever for the existing homeowner to then leverage against the people who they awarded the project, the home to, but they have less um, capacity then to negotiate. So it's a negotiating tactic. So we chose not to be the backup. And I think today is, uh, I think today closes, or yesterday closed the uh, 10 day period or whatever, uh, because they didn't open up the bids right away and such. So we haven't heard anything, assuming that house is gone. Mm, I'm sorry to hear that. It, it is interesting. I, I, I'm fascinated by the process. I'm almost tempted to switch topics, but we'll see how far we go down the <laughs> rabbit hole here. Um, you know, one of the things that came into mind was I can kind of see the real benefit of doing it that way. And I think I talked about that um, in a previous podcast. We were supposed to be in the house across the street from where I am now. That was the house we wanted originally. And we lost the deal because of a verbal problem, right? A, a, a bad game of telephone. We told our realtor, we want this house. Um, we can. We have no contingency and we can close in 10 days. It got translated through the realtors back to the estate that we had to close in 10 days and we lost the deal to a deal for less money. Wow. Um, you know, so I could totally see the advantage of really crossing your T's and dotting your I's on a contract. I could see it now, right? Because that's that I, I'll never forget that, right? We and the people who wound up buying that house paid less than we offered for the house. Uh, hmm. But because of that one problem with a verbal, we lost it, right? And it worked out in the end. I'm fine. Um, it's all it's all okay. These are the way things happen with real estate. But it was a lesson learned in terms of you know maybe having something in writing <laughs> could really add clarity to the situation. Um, the other thing that it prompted me was I had a buddy of mine um, uh, who who went to go look at houses with his dad. And the house that he wound up buying, uh, he went back for a second look, and um, the owners were there. And his dad, um, you know, was looking around. He wanted to see if if the hardwood floors were truly hardwood because there was carpet over them. And so his dad was like, when my buddy was talking to the realtor and the owner was kind of lingering around, um, which they shouldn't be, but was lingering around. His dad is in the corner ripping up carpet <laughs> to make sure there's hardwood underneath the the floor and he was mortified they left and and he's like uh, and he's like dad what are you doing i'm gonna lose the house what are you doing you know he's thinking don't worry about it he goes you come up with the money and you want this house they're gonna give you the house they don't care about me in the corner and sure enough that's what what happened right all was forgotten because my friend came in with a strong offer and they accepted it right um so this backup thing that you mentioned kind of i don't know why it prompted me to think about that but the whole backup concept is interesting because um, I could see where you're going with it in terms of that's a lever, but it could also be an innocent lever, right? It could be that the people that put the contract in, they go and um, put the bid in and they put the contract in and they have a death in the family and they say, you know what? I'm not in the mood to buy a house right now. We're going to put this aside, right? And then you become the backup, right? So I think that there might be some innocent excuses as to why people why you'd want to be a backup in that kind of situation because you don't know what's happening with that first offer you don't know what's happening behind the door 
right? Are they using it as a lever, like you said, Paul, which is a, is a perfect possibility, right? And, and very advantageous to have you as the backup. But maybe someone got sick. Maybe there was an accident. Maybe they didn't like the inspections. Maybe their funding fell through, right? Could be anything, right, that comes up. So to me, at least my opinion is being the backup, not so bad. To be the backup, I could see it because you lost the house anyway, at least the way I look at it. You're not going to get it anyway, so your heart's away from it. So being the backup gives you a slight chance of getting it. But I agree with you, Paul. They could easily use it as a lever. But there's also other reasons, I think, where you could wind up becoming the winning bid. Yeah, I, I think you're being a little um, too nice, Paul. <laughs> no, <laughs> okay. but I think <laughs> that really happens do. all the time, though. Funding yeah, falls through, but, but, down payments fall so, through, cold so feet is, kicks in. I, I think yeah, I don't know. I'm gonna I'll jump, I'll right? disagree and commit, and I'll go with yours. Uh, but for me, I I think there's other things that could happen um, yeah. behind the scenes. See, um, both both brokers know each other, so if the deal did go sideways on them, all right, they would probably call my broker because the third offer was nowhere in contention. So they, they're going to make that phone call to you if the first one falls through, regardless. So that's my take on it. That's what I did there. The other the other interesting thing, lesson learned, due to the fact that my kids are older, right, and they can understand things. In some ways, they're, they're very financially astute. We actually took the contract, the PDF, and we sent it to them. Take a look. Look, look at this massive document and, um, and, and read through it. So it's a really great teaching experience as well for them to, to see how some of this happens from kind of point A to maybe point B. We didn't get to the end of point whatever, but for them just to understand and, and see that. So it was a great, great open dialogue and discussion with the family. So everyone kind of understood what does it take? What does it, how does it work? You know, if you're putting down, you know, 15% versus 20% for PMI, stuff we've talked about in other episodes, of course, but it, it was a great, great learning experience. So, you know, sharing that with the kids uh, actually made me feel really good because it's it's so good for them to learn it firsthand rather than just reading about it or trusting blindly, you know, someone who they've never met before when you're purchasing your first home especially if you're in a different state or anywhere, ask every dumb question you can think of, especially when you're going to different states. But if you're in your own state, you're kind of used to it, still ask the questions if you've never done it. Even if you have done it, who cares? It's a transaction. And you need to protect yourself and be best suited for you, your family, and everything. So um, that's the other big lesson learned there. I don't think I got burnt or anything, but I learned a lot in dealing with the Florida market. Um you know, I was thinking, I was doing math, right? Okay, if I buy the house at this, my mortgage is this. And in the area I'm in, I could probably even rent it and be neutral. So the amount I would take in on rent on the property till I'm ready to move down there would cover, say, 80% of my mortgage, maybe 100%, depending on the property we've looked at. So it's another way to, to think about it. Oh gosh, there's even so much more, Paul. I can I can go on and on. <laughs> well, it's all ties. You just you got you kind of made the common link into the investing, right? So I think maybe with that we'll we'll kind of jump in. The the one thing that kind of jumped out to my mind was it's it is amazing that hopefully 20 years from now real estate 
buying will become easier in terms of paperwork and such. It's amazing that if if you wanted to buy a million shares of a stock through your online account, you could do it with the click of a mouse in seconds. But if you want to buy a $100,000 home somewhere in the U.S., it's months, right, of yep. paperwork and so many parties that are involved. And it just really is a crazy experience to me. And and so we could probably go down the rabbit hole as to why that still is. Uh, but, but at this point, maybe we'll just kind of jump into um, – some of these Reddit stories, because they do kind of tie, especially the first topic, Paul. And I think that's the, you know, the first one we had. And we posted all these on the Facebook page. Um, this townhouse versus duplex versus condo versus apartment versus house, right? So this is a very general question. It's had several responses. Um, you know, what kind of real estate should I buy? Should I buy a townhouse? Should I buy a duplex, a condo, an apartment, uh, which I'm assuming might be a co-op or versus a house? Um, I have my opinions on this, Paul. I think I, I tried to be an accidental landlord at one point before we bought our house. We, I said that if our condo didn't sell, we'd keep it. Um, it did sell quickly. I'm glad it did. Um, I've heard some real horror stories about ownership of of condos and townhouses and apartments, especially co-ops with boards and bylaws and stuff like that. And you got to be so careful um, with 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 tangling with investment property that's wrapped up in a community because uh, you might not be able to do exactly what you want as opposed to if you have a duplex house or a, or a regular house. You pretty much have a lot more flexibility um, in terms of renting and being a landlord. Paul, what was your take on this um, on this question, and, and what would your advice be for this person? So, so Paul, I, I have similar experience and thoughts of you in that, you know, you know, the duplexes, the townhomes, you know, the, these are attached, these are all a fraction of a whole unit in a way, right? So, you know, you have townhomes and duplexes, okay, they're, they're together, condos, apartments, or a co-op, as you, as you said, right? It's all part of it, and the rules and regulations around them. I think the one thing, and they say verse house here, even the home, you have to watch out for, right? Because if you have HOAs, a lot of these communities are gated communities, and they have HOAs or just HOAs in general. It doesn't have to be a gated community. And the restrictions they imply are, are, are daunting. I know my brother and sister-in-law, who, who do live in Florida, by the way, you know, in their home, you know, if they want to paint their house, well, you know, only allowed to select from a color palette of like three colors. And their current home color, even if they want to keep the same home color and paint it, is no longer on the palette. And they weren't, they're not allowed to do it and they get fined. Like, so to your point of, um, of getting into this and, and doing this, it, it is daunting. And this is just selecting a type of property here. You know, gosh, there's so much here, right? Um, what can you do? Can you sublet it, right? So if you own it, can can you? Are you allowed to rent it? Is that even in the bylaws, like you were saying? Don't know, don't know. And then you have to deal with the property management side of it. So do you want to be the guy when something breaks that they're calling, or are you gonna have a firm do that, which I know a lot of people do do. And I think one of the other articles on here is, um, you know, do you set it up as an LLC for tax purposes and such? We'll probably get to that in a minute. But 
me, uh, you know, I've never done it. Um, the house we were just looking at would be the first time I would do that. However, within my family, there's um, significant experience in being able to rent a property out. Specifically, my brother-in-law in Florida does it a lot, where he and he has a company where that's what they do. So I would tap into him and his local knowledge. And you know, I, as he told me, as I was looking at doing this property, he said, anything you need to set this up, I have a contact and can help you get going. So having that is really helpful. So I would, my experience, my comment would be to rely on others who are doing it, and especially in your specific area. That's a great call out. Yep. And and I agree with you on that wholeheartedly. You know, do your research. We've always said that. Do your research. Um, do as much as you can. And hopefully it's a two-way door decision. If something goes sideways, right, you could get out relatively clean. Um, the, the next story or the next question is actually kind of similar. Well, not really similar, but a little bit of parallel to what the story you had said, Paul, before. And thanks for sharing all that stuff, um, that your experience. Um, this Cape Cod rental market. Um, I'm going to, I was originally going to invest in some rental property in Connecticut, uh, but now I think I want to get a place in Cape Cod. I've wanted it for years, so I'll buy something there and rent it out for the next few summers. Um, does anyone have any experience with vacation rentals? Um, the season's pretty short. I'm hoping to get people's thoughts. Um, yeah, my, my immediate reaction to this is, once again, do your research, be careful, and be prepared for any potential downside, um, you know, in terms of the um, the market getting soft, um, you know, your rental season, you have a really bad season where it's really rainy, right? And you're depending on the Cape Cod market, which is if people who don't know Cape Cod is this beautiful shorefront uh, on the ocean towns up in Massachusetts. Um, you get a summer where it's really rainy and people bail and don't want to show up to your house and you got to float that mortgage for the full year. You got to have the money, right? You got to have enough money to assume that you might not be able to rent it that summer, right? You buy the house and you rent it one summer and the next summer you find out or over the winter you find out you have mold in the basement, right? <laughs> you can't rent out the house. Like there's all kinds of things that could happen. So if you're going into it with the eye of rental and you're depending on the rental income to cover the expenses fully and you don't have the money to cover if something goes sideways, you got to be prepared for the consequences. So that's kind of my uh, take on it, Paul. What was your take on this question? What would you do in this situation? Um Paul, I'm in 100% agreement with you. You need to be able to have your reserves and ability or the ability to pay it straight out, right, if, if there is a problem, as well as not only if they don't show up for whatever reason, you you probably get some of that money back, by the way, because it was a commitment. But if you look at it and now you have that mold remediation, right, That's that's coming out of your pocket. So... You need, you need to understand that there are ups and downs, and right now is, in a lot of areas, a, a peak of the market. I think the Fed just announced just the other day that they've seen some softening in the market, um, but not everywhere, not everywhere. So it's uh, I was talking to my broker about it uh, last week or earlier this week even, saying, look, it looks like I'm starting to see some softening. He's like, not here. I'm not. I'm like, okay. Again, he's the local guy. He actually lives 
in the neighborhood. So I, I respect that. Um, it's, it's a tough time to buy right now. It's, it's a tough time. For me, from a dollar point of view, I'm looking at it. This isn't a house for now or next week. I told them, look, I, I don't need it now. Right? I'm looking eight, ten years from now. Yeah, that's when I'm looking to, to potentially do something. So he's like, well, we'll certainly find something before then. It's not going to take that long. But, and, and what I'm looking at buying isn't just so. For me, the value is is different. It's a long-term thing. Because then after me and my wife, well, then is it we want to make it a place that it could be a family thing going forward. So I'm, I'm playing a very, very long game in that essence of it. So it, it's different. If you're doing it purely for rental, for rental income, you know, knock yourself out. I had a friend... Uh, one of my uh, earlier jobs in my career, younger guy than me, and he bought this super expensive um, triplex. And he was renting out the other two floors and living in one, and they were covering 100% of his mortgage. And I think it was like a million-dollar property at the time. This was back, um, I think, early 2000s in Queens. And I'm like, oh, my gosh, you bought a million-dollar property? He's like, yeah, but I have two renters that are covering the monthly rent, the monthly mortgage completely, and I live rent-free. So if you can make it work, God bless you. You know, it does take a little bit of thick skin sometimes, too. Yeah, absolutely. I think that, you know, I, I've said this story on the in the past and you hit it on the head, kind of that generational home. I have a friend that did it. I won't rehash the story, but um, he did the same thing, right? He bought on the Jersey Shore. It's become a family heirloom. Um, the family uses it extensively. People travel from all over the country to come back, his kids, right, to hang out at the house in the summer. Um, he bought it with never the intention of renting it or making money on it. Um, he went in purely for the family. Um, and I think I, I told you, you know, it, it, it quadrupled in, in, in value. And at one point he was ready to sell it because that was his tipping point. And his wife pulled him back and said, nope, we're not going to sell it. But she originally didn't want him to buy it. <laughs> but there was a lot going on there. And, and in the end, they all, re they, neither of them regret holding it, right? It's still very valuable, but it's not, the value isn't in the dirt. And it's not right. in the in the house. It's in the fact that his kids come back now. They're all grown, and they come back every summer to the beach house, right? And he's got friends that come to the beach house, and his place becomes the hub, um, you know, for his situation, right? And and I think that's that's the key. It's very accessible, and you know, it's 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 where he grew up, and it's in the area, so it's it's easy to get to, it's easy to maintain, it's not too far from his regular house, it, so it's all kind of worked out for him, um, I think. But um, you know, to your point before, Paul, it's like you know, making sure that you know you're 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 you have the money in arrears to to make sure that you can fund this thing if something goes sideways, right? I think that's the key. So. Um, the next, the next question that we have is, do you handle your own taxes? New to this, but considering it, doing it myself. It's only one rental property uh, shared between me and, a, and my business partner, a 90-10 split. How hard can it be, you know? 
<laughs> That's a really loaded question, but opens up a whole thing. I think for me, Paul, if I'm going to invest in real estate, that's a whole new tax structure for me, um, especially if in some way I'm holding the real estate and then eventually, like in your case, Paul, it would come back to be a personal residence, but right now it's going to be rental and then it's going to flip back to personal. Like I would definitely, definitely, and you got a partner involved. Yes, you want someone to do the taxes, to do the finances around this thing, to make sure everything is buttoned up, everything is summarized. Um, that would be my take on it. Um, and, and someone, not only someone to do your taxes, but somebody to handle your legal, right? So they talk about here in the question, make sure you have an LLC set up, uh, par proper partnership agreements with the right split. Um, proper issuance of 1099s from the account. There's all kinds of things here. So yes, it's one property, but to me, um, and we've said this over and over and over again, uh, whether it's your own personal finances or you're doing something with real estate, you have to ha build that team around you, um, that realtor, that property management company, that attorney, that accountant. You want to have all those people in place so when you buy, whether it's one property or 10 properties, you have this team to help you. Paul, what was your take and what would your advice be to this uh, person that asked this question? Paul, you're you're spot on 100%. Um, the fact that you're even asking the question means you probably need help. Right? Yeah, so, yeah, good call so, out. So get the professional help. Um, things get very tricky very quickly. Um, gosh, you know, if there's a mortgage on the property, well, how much is the mortgage versus the rent versus your, and how much that's actually true net gained income, it gets really complicated really quickly. Um, if you're in it and this is your, you know, implying that you're going to do another one, right, or whatever is your first one, you, you need the help. Do it the right way. Don't don't mess around with the taxes. You, you don't want Uncle Sam, IRS, knocking at your door to ask more questions and then you're just sitting there with your jaw dropped. So that's my, that's, that's, that's Paul's personal take on it. Very cool. Very cool. Um, the next question, uh, cash reserves, uh, fellow buy and hold investors. What do you think about reserves? How do you manage your excess cash flow? Um, keeping 10 K in reserves for the property I own. Um, you know, what's your risk appetite? These are, and we've talked, we touched upon this, right, Paul, and I'm going to be over the top on this. Um, you don't have to have dollar for dollar, but you have to have some sort of calculated risk. And he's talking about 10K on hand. And I can't tell whether that's what the property he's got invested in, right? Is 10K sufficient? Maybe he needs 100K. Maybe he only needs 2K, right, in reserve. I don't know. It's hard to tell from this question. Um, I don't know what the rule of thumb would be. I, I can only tell you the advice I have, and I we've kind of scattered it among this podcast so far. Um, you really have to... If you're going to be a, a landlord, you have to deal with the consequences and you have to write out those worst case scenarios and ask advice and you have to come up with a number in reserves that will allow you to sleep at night, right? If you have a $500,000 property that you're renting and you only have 10K in reserves or I'm not going to sleep very well, right? If I only have 10K on a $500,000 property, right? If I have... $200,000 in reserves and I have a $500,000 property and I have a mortgage on, I'll probably sleep pretty well, right? Because I know that most storms I could weather, right? Um, even if the place burns to the ground and insurance goes sideways, I can, 
it'll it'll be ugly, but I could weather that storm. Um, Paul, what's your take when it came to this question? So I, it kind of was weird to me, right, that they're doing it. He said, I've been keeping 10K in reserves for the property I own, but I'm wondering if it's really nece necessary to have that much cash on hand. I'm like, if you're owning and investing in real estate, 10K is not a lot of money. I mean, even if you're, even if the home is a hundred twenty thousand dollar property, right? Ten k is is still not a lot. Um, if there's a repair, a roof, anything, I, I I just found it really interesting. This sounds like the opposite of you, Paul. Who um, this guy just wants to have everything invested, hundred percent high risk stocks or something, and um, <laughs> that that was my take on it. You do need the reserves. You do need to be able to weather that storm. So I agree with you. But I just feel like 10K in reserves for a property they own seems really um, light. Uh, I know one commenter did say, well, you just need, you know, maybe we don't need it on hand, but quickly accessible. Uh, that's a fair comment. But um, I, I think I'm a little bit more like you in this, Paul. I, I want to have enough reserve reserve cash and then yes i have some stuff i can get to quicker uh, from investments or something but not cash on hand just seems like property 10k in reserve doesn't sound like a lot to me well it, it, i agree and if if you thought that was a a, a great question you, you'll love and you've probably seen it right our next our next question that we're going to tackle which is our final one but i, I this one was my favorite um, especially the line where it says, currently I have 14 rental properties throwing off $1,500 post-tax a month in cash flow. Um, <laughs> you talk about rolling dice. Um, that really feels like the guy or gal is, is rolling dice here. Um, so if you read this story, I won't go into all the details, but I guess the, the, the pertinent points are he has 14 rental, he or she has 14 rental properties with only $1,500 a month post-tax, so a little bit over $100 per property on all these properties. That's what it's netting this person um, every month. Um, you know, has some emergency fund, has an additional 170 k ready to buy more properties, but nothing's become available. Um, but then I read his his only non-mortgage debt is a is a $95,000 school loan, a truck loan for $36,000, wife's truck loan for $24,000. Um, I'd like to think that this is a phony story, Paul, but man, I believe it. Totally believe it. And, and, and maybe, and this, you know, getting back to my sleep analogy, I'd have insomnia with this guy's uh, situation, but I bet you he doesn't. I bet you he sleeps well. Um, I guess the net effect is buy more real estate or pay off some debt. What would I do with that 170K? I would hammer away at this portfolio to get it to a more manageable state. So I would pay off as much as I can. I'd probably go so far as to look at these 14 properties, see which ones are the duds, liquidate some of this stuff and get my portfolio a little bit more healthy. I'd put 107, I'd take 170K, that, that 170K and take a certain percentage off to put into a really good reserve fund. Um, man, I, I would do so many different things here, Paul, to get my sleeping habits back in, in line. But like I said, I think this guy is sleeping quite well with 50K in, um, in truck loans. Um, but Paul, what was your take on this story or well, question? I, he's all, like you said, he's also looking to buy a 14-unit complex. He's all in. Six, he's all in, man. He, he is I, my I hero. Guess, 
He used to be anti-Paul or the anti-Paul Fagan, I'll say. He um, definitely yeah. is. But I want to know who the heck is loaning him all those money. Like his 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 debt to income ratio. I mean, we don't know what he makes as a as a living, but it doesn't sound like he's making a million dollars a year or anything here. This sounds just a. Well, he says he makes roughly two fifty to three hundred. Um, that's what it says here, of which 56K is salary not tied to my business a year. So I'm guessing maybe oh, I miss that. Okay. Maybe his wife. Yeah, so it is a he. His wife is making. Yeah, I didn't read it clearly until you, you started reading, so don't worry about it. Um, so I'm guessing maybe his wife makes 56K. He makes the bulk of the money. That's what it feels like because 56K is salary not tied to his business. Um, but yeah, this guy is he's a gambler, right? He's the guy you want to go to Vegas with, right? He, you're going to have a lot of fun with this guy it feels like um yeah but in the end 20 years from now um he he might be the the smart one i just don't yeah. know but right now um yeah well, this is yeah, i mean wow that's yeah that's a little too uh too risky for my blood i'm out yeah I'm folding on that one Paul. yeah yeah <laughs> i i think that um my advice and once again to kind of recap i think we're on the same page um Someone needs to have a financial intervention with him and and kind of set him straight and 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 kind of uh, you know take this 170k that's sitting there and really figure out how to kind of de-risk this portfolio. But but once again, that's just one person's opinion, and and I think with that we'll kind of jump into the wrap up, which I've been kind of thinking about, and and um, whether it's the investing that we talked about before, Paul, or um, the the uh you know for the financial investing or the real estate investing um these opinions that i spouted today are just my opinions right i i think that my advice is going to tend to be uh where i'm super risk adverse right so especially with that last question right that i answered um i probably would tear apart that portfolio i couldn't sleep with that kind of portfolio but um i'm not saying that my advice is correct Right. I, I think that I'm just giving you what I would do. I think there might be something more towards the middle, self-admitted, um, where I would I would I probably should take on more risk in my life. And this has been something that I've talked about for a very long time. Um, but but for me, my recap would be um, take the advice with a grain of salt. Um, this is what I would do. But keep in mind that the advice is coming from somebody who is super risk adverse, who's really watching each and every situation closely. I'm going to think about the worst case scenario, right? So if I bought a rental house with my luck, um, the guy who rents it's going to change his, I'm going to use the line that Dave Ramsey says, right? I'm going to I'm gonna buy a piece of property. The guy I'm going to rent it to, he's going to change his uh, Harley oil from his Harley Davidson in my living room. It's going to stain the floors. And before he leaves, um, he's going to be angry and he's going to rip the kitchen apart. And I'm going to have to go down there and rebuild, right? Or I'm going to get mold in the basement, right? Like something's going to happen right? <laughs> That in my mind. Uh, but that being said, um, uh, kind of circling back, uh, take my advice with a grain of salt. You want to be less ri less risk adverse than I am. And 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 go in with a lens of just making sure you're knowledgeable and you're you're informed, right? Make sure you do your research, and if the risk is still higher than I would tolerate, and you're comfortable with it after doing your research, go for it. So, Paul, what was your recap? So I am 
not as risk adverse as you. I think I'm a little bit more towards the middle. Um, yeah, we, we sound like a broken record at times. You know, it's about doing your homework, understanding what you're getting into. And that's probably the simplest advice you really can give, even if you listen to Ramsey, right? Just, just to look at what you're doing here. And when you're unsure, get the help, right? Just, you got to talk to people. And sometimes, in this case, you know, asking on Reddit is probably not the right forum. <laughs> there, there got to be other people that this person's met in their world doing this stuff, and uh, you know, talking it out with you know tax professionals and legal professionals on some of these things makes a lot more sense than posting it on Reddit. Uh, I'm just astonished that people turn to Reddit as their answer. But okay, it gives us great material to talk about, Paul. That's right. That's right. And that real estate, that last story was is, is sort of for me. That's my nightmare on Elm Street, right? Like that. That would be the one. I I don't. I'm not even in this guy's shoes, and I might not sleep tonight after reading that. Right? I'm so scared for him. Um, <laughs> with all that stuff, but that that's life, right? And that's how it goes. So, well, Paul, I thoroughly enjoyed our discussion today, and I'm personally looking forward to the next one. Um, thanks everyone for downloading our podcast. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at financialdads at gmail.com. Or check us out on Facebook. Just go to financialdads.com. So with that, this is Paul and Paul reminding you, managing finances can be stressful, but that's why the Financial Dads are here to help you plan for success. Have a good one, everybody. Be well, and thank you. Thank you.